HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Borders seem to be all over the news lately. You've got trade wars, Brexit, and of course, Trump's wall. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring how borders are created and blurred in the world of food. We try to focus a lot on the fact that they are chefs by nature, uh, that the refugee thing is just a status for them. And after the Soviet space ended, I don't think there was much research. It was all considered just Soviet food or Russian food. And I don't think it gives a lot of those cultures credit. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Food Without Borders. This is a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and you are listening to us from the studio in the back of Roberta's Pizza uh, on heritageradionetwork.org. Today, my guests are the founders of Kaona Kitchen, founded by Cole Carruthers and Shilpa Nandwandi. Kaona Kitchen was built on the footsteps of revolutionaries who believed in the power of community and fought for their rights to thrive. Kaona means to eat now in Visayan and to feast now in Punjabi. A fusion between Filipino and Indian culture, it is cooperatively owned and offers wellness coaching, educational workshops, and curriculum, and the catering of traditional Indian and Filipino meals with a healthy twist. Kaona Kitchen is based in Brooklyn, New York, and is a queer, gender nonconforming, women and people of color run cooperative. Kaona Kitchen prides itself on delicious, unique, non-factory methods of creating sustainable food while decolonizing our minds and methods of what it means to create and eat food that has ridges, curves, and bumps, yet never sacrificing flavor or integrity. Welcome to the show, Cole and Shilpa. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for being here. Shilpa, you there? Did we lose Shilpa? All right, uh, we have Shilpa on the line, but maybe she cut out for a minute and we will hopefully try and fix that. 
Um, Hi, now I can hear you. You're back. That's great. <laughs> I am. I'm here. <laughs> okay, we're so glad. And we have Cole Carruthers here in studio. So we're very happy to have you both here. <laughs> great. Uh, I love this description of Cohen and Kitchen. It's, um, it's just, it's so vivid and descriptive. Um, why don't you start by telling us what is conscious Indian and Filipino cuisine? Whoever wants to take it. <laughs> Shilpa. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, so it's funny because when we were in the Green Worker Cooperative Academy, people kind of asked us the same thing of like, what does it mean for food to be conscious, right? right? Um, and a lot of that comes from ensuring that the produce that we use, um, 85% or more of it, is locally grown and sourced. So we know the farm that the food is coming from. We know kind of how it's going from the land to the kitchen and then eventually to you all who are eating it. Um, and also meaning that the love and the care that goes into cooking the food and the stories of our ancestors and of our families and the experiences that we have in creating the food and ensuring that there is intention that's going into it um, and the way that that makes you feel when you eat our food. So leaving people walking away feeling nourished and loved and held just by eating our food. Yeah. Um, well, since you mentioned that so much of your food is um, created with the intention of, I guess, telling a story about where you came from, can you start a little bit, both of you, um, by telling us a little bit about your backgrounds? And Shilpa, since you were just speaking to that, if, if you want to start. Yeah, so um, my family is from Punjab in India, um, although I was born and raised here in New York, which um, is definitely kind of its own process and journey of trying to figure out what um, like cultural aspects to hold on to, what to remember, how to not forget, and how to kind of embrace that, which has taken me a really long time to get to, but I feel like I am here and there um it's finally kind of flourishing and I'm able to embrace it and honor it and ask more questions, um, which has been really nice. But growing up was mostly my mom, you know, being in the kitchen and cooking sabji, which is just different kinds of vegetables. Um, and me getting really sick of it actually, um, and not wanting it every day and wanting different things to eat and not just having the same thing with roti and with rice. Um, and so my, my older sister kind of, uh, who's five years older than me, she started cooking newer stuff. So experimenting with different foods. Um, and then I, she taught me how to do that. And so that's kind of where I started at maybe eight or nine years old being in the kitchen and loving it. And, um, originally it started off as a love for baking and making cakes and things like that, but, as I got older, I also um, experienced a lot of uh, an increase in food allergies. So I'm allergic to a lot of things that are claimed to be good for you, like apples and celery and peaches and carrots. Oh, my God. Um, the list definitely goes on, but I don't have to really list all of them, but just as an idea of the things that I can't eat. And so... Um, it's been quite the journey of not being so angry at myself for not being able to eat these things and rather um, celebrating all of the foods and flavors that I can experience and also um, 
that is a lot of what is brought into um, Kalina Kitchen from my end. Are any of the foods you're allergic to, do they ever appear in any of the foods that you cook? Nope. No. No. So I'm like, why should I cook food that I can't eat or I'm, enjoy? Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> that makes sense um, to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, as far as what you were talking about is, um, you know, like the journey of kind of coming, not coming to terms, but you phrased it obviously much better because kind of figuring out where you were from and being born in New York City and raised, but I mean, just kind of connecting, I guess, with your identity and your heritage. Um, mm-hmm. Has part of that journey been through food and, and creating this business where you're able to kind of play with and learn about your ancestors through the recipes that you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and something that was kind of fun for me was uh, writing some of the descriptions for the menu items, which each of them or a lot of them had kind of a story of where they came from or how a recipe that my mom would make all the time. How can we honor the fact that she's the one who kind of brought this to me and then therefore to us um, and not not really change it, but kind of just ensure that, again, the produce that we're getting is um local, it's gluten-free, you know, it isn't uh, masked by any unnecessary flavors and to just allow kind of the food to speak for itself. Um, And I've actually, I've done a lot of, um, which I'm sure Cole will talk about in a little bit, but I've done a lot of like organizing work within the Filipino community. So actually doing that um, and spending time in the Philippines has also opened my eyes to kind of the relationship between the Philippines and India um, and kind of igniting a larger curiosity around where certain things culturally, um, where that came from um, and kind of the history behind that. So that has kind of been intertwined uh, between Filipino culture um, and and my own heritage and culture. Mm-hmm. Cool. Can you tell us a little bit about that specifically and also about your, your background and what your growing up life was like. <laughs> yeah, um, my relationship with the food was much different. Um, so my family is from a rural area of the Philippines and grew up in an agricultural uh, space in which they were very much connected to the land and migrated to rural Northern California where I grew up on a farm um, growing okra and corn. Um, but I... I shied away from the kitchen. I was always running around outside. I was always in a tree. Um, and in a tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so really love nature, but the kitchen was a place that was a little scary for me. Um, and so I actually, eventually when I went to college and um, moved out to New York after college, I was definitely the person who was like going to Trader Joe's, buying those like frozen chicken list chicken tenders, mm-hmm. putting them in the oven, and calling that dinner. Um, and it's it, not the worst. <laughs> it definitely <laughs> wasn't the worst. Um, but I didn't experiment, and I didn't really think about. Um, yeah, definitely didn't think about food and its relation to my energy and how it made me feel. So actually, often I would eat. Uh, I was a vegetarian, but I definitely ate like quesadillas and fries and just food that wasn't 
fueling me or making me feel good. Um, and it wasn't really until I met Shilpa uh, that I got back into the kitchen um, and started experimenting. And it was through also my work in the Filipino community. I've been an organizer in New York for the past six years, seven years now. Um, and I've been able to go back to the Philippines every year. And last year, Shilpa and I had the opportunity to integrate with a farming community. And we were harvesting food, cooking it. And um, it was only really then where I started to recognize that there is a simplicity in food um, that can make it also really delicious and beautiful. And it's not something that's so complicated and that I can't also reproduce on my own. Um, so there, yeah, Shilpa talked a lot about the similarities between uh, the Philippines and India, and definitely one of them is both of our countries are big agricultural uh, communities, and, and a lot of people are connected to the land. Um, and so when my family came here from the Philippines, they were able to farm the land, but in New York City, it's really difficult for the diaspora here to have that relationship with the land. And so one of the things that I've been doing also through farm school, which I'm a part of, is trying to also build out that um, that access and talking about uh, where our food comes from and uh, how we can make it, you know, a little bit less mysterious and get people on board and into the kitchen. Um, as as far as creating menus together, do you try and keep things separate? I mean, do you try and keep things more traditional when you're working on, you know, Indian food versus Filipino food? Or do you look to find ways to integrate and, and be more playful and creative? Yeah, so we only have one thing that actually is a combination of, like, Filipino and Indian flavors, and that's our cupcake. Uh, it's called an Indipino cupcake, which <laughs> is like a cardamom pistachio gluten-free cake and an ube Swiss meringue uh, frosting. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, and so that really is, um, I guess, the fusion there between our two cultures. But what we I didn't want to use that word fusion. Yeah. I don't know why. It just feels like a <laughs> silly word. Yeah, um, we definitely don't use that word uh, when we're talking about our food. I just figured you did. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's part of the question, right? So traditional, yeah. like when I mentioned before when we were in the Philippines, we learned really how to break down, like, what really is in, a, like, adobo, like a chicken adobo, which is, like, a staple Filipino dish, right? Um, and, you know, whatever region you go to, it's going to be different. Um, but that is like every Filipino swears by their chicken adobo. And we in our way have also um, created a kind of chicken adobo that's uh, different, um, but also maintains the integrity of traditional flavors. So it's gluten free, which is like not often the case for chicken adobo. Um, the like Chilpa mentioned before, the ingredients are, are locally um, sourced. Um, and we, and then the way that we prepare it is really, really simple. It's only really a few things, whereas um, we've noticed that other folks do often add uh, a bunch of different stuff. But that will will take those flavors and we'll pair it next to something that we think uh, will go nicely together. So we might, you know, pair a chicken adobo with a chana masala, chana masala which is a traditional Indian dish, right? So we kind of, we do a little bit of both. So having the traditional flavors, but um, placing them next to each other. Yeah, I mean, I'm just curious what conversations are like between both of you when you're coming up with what to cook and what to serve. 
Because, I mean, there's always that question of, like, you know, authenticity, which is another one of those, like, really sort of problematic, difficult words to wrap your mind around. But when you're approaching food, I mean, obviously you, you are prioritizing health and you're putting your own spin on it and, you know, you're, you're valuing, um, you know, food that makes you feel good and taking all of that into consideration. So how careful are you being with making sure you're, like you said, you know, preserving the integrity of like the origin of the recipes? Yeah, I think we're, um, I was, she's pausing to see if Shilfa would jump in. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm here. I, the, I can't fully hear what Cole is saying, so I'm not sure if they've already started answering or if I should go for it. So I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> yeah, I think there might be a little bit of a lag time there. Um, yeah. But Cole hadn't, Cole hadn't answered yet. Okay. Um, I mean, it's a little bit tricky. I don't. And Cole, I don't know if you have had a different experience about people kind of like questioning our authenticity around the food. Um, I mean, we just keep going back to like testing our food and seeing how people like it and, and really welcoming any kind of like criticism or any kind of um, input from people, you know. We try to make sure that we're not um, just kind of stuck in this bubble of just trying cooking foods and trying foods just between the two of us because who knows what would happen if that was the case. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we really look to our community to give us feedback often and we try to make sure that when we are giving or making food for people that... Um, people aren't walking away feeling like they're missing something or that, um, you know, like looking at it in the like deficit model, but rather like, Oh, it's gluten free, but actually it makes me feel all of these really great things. Um, so kind kind of framing it that way. Um, and yeah, we, we create a lot of conversations around, um, gathering input from, like customers from potential customers, past ones, um, and just friends and family also. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I mean, Cole, go ahead. I was just going to say that um, it just seems like a lot of people are sort of pushing the messaging these days that like this food is mm. authentic. And I just, I, res- <laughs> I respect the fact that, um, n- that that's not necessarily part of your branding. It's just, you know, this food is really thoughtfully crafted and we're pretty sure Mm -hmm. it's delicious and it's going to make you feel really good. So I think that, I mean, the word authentic, I think doesn't, it's been distilled so much that it doesn't necessarily even have value at this point. Although it just feels like one of those buzzwords that people just throw in because they think people want to hear it. Yeah. And what I was just going to add was that, um, a lot of Filipino food inherently is, uh, meat heavy. Um, and we only serve two, dif- two kinds of meat, which is turkey and chicken. Um, and so inherently a lot of our cuisine is the Filipino side of our cuisine is vegan or vegetarian, um, or is, uh, pretty slim on the meat side. And what we, so what we're trying to really lead with is this food is delicious and it'll make you feel really good after you eat it. Um, because oftentimes Uh, From my experience eating Filipino food after, you know, eating something, I just feel really heavy and I feel really sleepy and I feel lethargic. um, And that's not the experience that we want. And also we were both educators for quite a long time. And uh, 
had to be really creative with our students around um, foods like tofu, right? Um, and so tofu is something that we use a lot in our food. Uh, and we actually consider it like a success if somebody is eating our tofu dish and doesn't realize it's to- it's not tofu or that it is tofu. <laughs> right. um, uh, because we definitely, we what we want to do is lead with how it tastes. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We are going to hear from our sponsors today. And then we'll be back to talk more with Cole and Shilpa of Kaona Kitchen. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kotbalt Cave-Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jenna Liute, and I'm the host of Eating Matters here on HRN. Join me as I talk to food systems experts about the issues that shape our experiences of buying, cooking, and eating food. You can find Eating Matters wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And fall asleep just to wake up. Hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I have been speaking with Cole Carruthers and Shilpa Nanwandi of Kaona Kitchen. Welcome back, both of you. Hope you enjoyed those cool tunes. Yeah, that was <laughs> a great song. It was like all of a sudden we were in a rave <laughs> momentarily. Thank, thank you for that, Matt. Um, <laughs> so what so you you t- you just touched on this uh, that you were both educators before at some point but um can you speak a little bit more specifically about what you were doing before you made the decision to start a business which is you know obviously such a huge undertaking and risky um and probably i don't know maybe people told you <laughs> not to do it i have no idea um but just you know what was the decision to start Kaona Kitchen and did have did you did you see examples of you know Indian and Filipino food before that inspired you to do something else or you felt like there was a deficit in, in terms of what you know you felt like you wanted to represent um, Cole why don't you go first <laughs> cool yes. um, so yeah before we jumped into this I was an administrator at a middle school in Brooklyn um, and I kind of like what I was mentioning in my story before was like eaten fast and um, kind of eating food in a way that just like kept me going but didn't really sustain me and didn't make me feel very good. Um, And I noticed that there were, uh, that I was really low in energy and that I just like um, couldn't get through the day without feeling really tired. Uh, And I 
had started talking to my community and started talking to students and, and wondering, like, were they feeling the same way? And what it, we found were that a lot of our students weren't even eating breakfast, they weren't eating lunch. Um, and even in my community, and, and like I was mentioning before, uh, in the Filipino community, lots of people grew up around um, farmland. And being in New York City, it was really hard to find you know, fresh food um, that they, they knew where it was coming from. Um, and so Shilpa and I were working at the same middle school, uh, and we decided to explore um, you know, what this looked like for our students and have these conversations with our students, which ultimately... Uh, we applied the night before uh, a deadline was due for an education incubator with this idea of um, creating space for our students to talk about food and food justice, um, ultimately towards an idea or towards the idea that they would organize their own spaces and, and one day um, sort of reclaim the food landscape in their communities. Was that any part of the curriculum before that or is it just something that you would bring up in conversation no way was not part of the <laughs> curriculum yeah uh, it was just something that we were like excited about because you know everybody most people love to eat yeah right? and so if you're not eating and particularly <laughs> communities of color lots of people come around the dinner table and that's where you have real genuine discussion that's where you build community mm-hmm. and we were finding our students just weren't eating and we're mm-hmm. like there's something wrong here um mm-hmm. so yeah like i said we uh, we applied the night before this education incubator. We got accepted and into that incubator, and it helped us really think through uh, what our ideas were. We had to come back to the community, do several interviews with students, with teachers, with um, people who lived in the neighborhood, um, with other people who were doing food, and just like get to the root of um, the issue around food in the community. And it also helped us really think through, you know, what is the structure for all of this stuff? Like, is it a nonprofit? Is it like a, just a program in a school? Is it a business? And we landed on it's a cooperative, um, which we knew a little bit about through being in the Philippines a couple of times. There's um, several examples of the community, um, particularly in farm areas, that would come together and they would um, buy resources and share them collectively, and they all had a democratic say in where the resources were going to, um, how much they were going to spend on XYZ, and who was going to use it at what time. And so we knew that we wanted a non-hierarchical structure in whatever we were creating. Everybody had a seat at the table, whether it was a student, whether it was a teacher, whether it was one of us as a founder. Um, And so that's how we also got plugged into the Green Worker Cooperative Academy, which then built everything because I don't have a business background. I didn't really know people who had business backgrounds, and I'd only had Filipino food. Um, in Jackson Heights, which um, is really delicious, but is a traditional brick-and-mortar kind of thing. Um, and I didn't ever see any, like, classes around Filipino food or, or even people talking about, like, food justice and wellness with, within the Filipino community about food. And so we were really just charging forward. Did you forward. not have it growing up? It was not part of what your family ate? No, I mean, yes and no. I'm, I mentioned that we grew up growing corn and okra. Uh-huh. Um, Okra is definitely something that is grown in the Philippines, but corn isn't. Um, and so we often ate uh, a lot of corn or things that were on the farm um, or, you know, McDonald's, uh, yeah. stuff that is pretty uh, cheap and fast, mm-hmm. which is what followed me into New York and living here. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so we built out this sort of business as a cooperative wanting to 
be able to have these assessments with our community, um, be able to address the needs of young people and our community, but have them also be a part of the conversation without us saying like, hey, we know what the problem is and this is what our solution is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Shelba, can you speak to that at all? Where, I mean, that was... Yeah. Covered, was, I'm sure covered a lot of ground there, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess some other things to add is I was um, a math teacher before and I kind of always thought that that was going to be the thing that I do for the rest of my life and how I was going to change the world. Um, And then I realized that, you know, there are some bigger issues kind of outside of the math classroom that are happening and that I need to address. And I was um, also getting very sick. Um, There was like a scary, like, maybe I have an aneurysm in my brain. I need an angiogram done. And I was like, okay, this is not going to work. I can't keep living like this. And this Um, was all related to the food allergies? It was just related to me not taking care of myself in all of the ways that that could kind of um, take form and manifest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and Cole and I both realized that this is kind of no way to to keep on living. Um, and so we were dreaming really big of a cafe, of a community space, you know, and then... Um, we kind of took all of these ideas and dreams. And then as Cole was saying, that incubator program really helped in figure out what what is it that we're really trying to achieve. Um, and in that process, we also um, both became health coaches, which was quite the journey of like asking really hard questions around what our relationship to food is and kind of why is it that way? And um, how do we create a positive experience around around food um, because we noticed that even within uh, a lot of times it's there's this kind of idea or feeling of oh I ate this thing and so I'm bad for this or um, I ate a brownie and I'm I'm the worst you know Mm -hmm. you know there's this kind of like punishment and reward system that exists within our relationships to food yeah really also trying to yeah trying to break that as well Um, yeah just, I mean, just structurally, it seems like you took on so much so quickly, <laughs> you know, becoming health coaches and then also creating a food business and, you know, education is a big part of it. How, did you kind of just tackle everything at once or did you say, you know, we're going to do this one thing first and then we'll do the next or did it, did you just approach it holistically? Yeah, that was difficult considering we were both <laughs> working from like turkey. yeah we were both working at the school from like 7 a.m to like 4 p.m um every so day. you were doing everything while you were still working full time yeah. yeah so we <laughs> led with the curriculum piece um and uh wanting first it for it to be like an educational component um and so we worked on that in our uh our like four-week curriculum first and then we launched our menu uh, which we were testing while we were doing our curriculum. Uh, we have like a community advisory board um, who were like running our menu by, and then we would um, cater certain events in the organizing community and then like survey everybody and see like, did you like this thing? Should we include it on our <laughs> menu? So then, so in 2017, we were working on our curriculum and then 2018, uh, we launched our menu. Um, and so it was a lot of moving parts all at the same time, but trying to figure out uh, if we could focus a little bit before we launched each thing. 
Does it feel like there's one aspect of it at this point that kind of leads? Or is everything very just sort of interwoven? I think um, our catering has definitely been at the forefront um, in this past year. Um, however, keeping that in mind while also knowing that the things that we learned through health coaching, the workshops that we do around food justice and connecting to our community kind of influence the, the people or the organizations that we work with. Um, and we try to make sure, you know, we're the ones who are prepping the food, cooking the food, delivering it, setting it up. And so how often do you get to meet the people who also actually cook your food? Mm -hmm. And so we try to, um, when we're explaining what everything is, when we're explaining who we are, to really create that, um, that personal like connection and, and story, uh, storytelling with it. And so I think, I think they're kind of interwoven, but I do most of our, our time and our um, successes have been through the, the catering aspect. But as we, as we continue to grow, um, which we are currently doing, we're about to double in size. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, we'll be looking towards uh, a potential partnership with a middle school to really get our, uh, our curriculum up and moving this, oh, next, this coming school year. That's great. Um, The mission that is on your website and that you sent me says uh, that Kono Kitchen is built on the footsteps of revolutionaries before us who believed in the power of community and fought for their rights to thrive. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? How does it relate to what you're doing on a daily basis? Oh, in so many ways. (laughs) Um, I think like one of the things that just like first comes to mind is, um, we were really inspired by the Black Panthers uh, mm-hmm. uh, free food program um, and thinking about how do communities actually sustain themselves um, without uh, being reliant on um, outside forces or like outside corporations um, sort of, you know, mm-hmm. trying to build that ability to sustain a community from within, right? Um, So from the Black Panthers to even in the Philippines, in the countryside, and people literally um, needing to fight uh, in order to maintain their ancestral lands, um, whether it be against uh, displacement from foreign corporations um, or government encroaching on their lands, uh, but knowing that you know, if they don't have access to their lands and aren't able to grow their food, then they won't um, be able to live. And it's beyond just being able to live, it's actually, for us, it's being able to thrive. So it's not just about like, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, food access um, or like just having basic access, access to food, but it's also about your developing positive experiences with food and, and feeling nourished and feeling fulfilled by your food. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think we draw, we draw a lot of lessons from different organizing movements and spaces um, and uh, food justice warriors throughout the years and, and currently uh, and try to bring that aspect into what we do. So that's why we're mm-hmm. cooperative. We want to eliminate, like, you know, hierarchies and forms of oppression within our co-op but even when we're talking about our food we don't want to pass um on uh you know our food our produce our ingredients um we want them to be insured we want to ensure that they're 
um, being farmed sustainably um, and uh, that they're actually also helping benefit the communities that they come from so that when we're serving that to people, they're feeling um, connected and they're feeling mm -hmm. um, fulfilled and they're not also uh, eating sort of the, the energy that that food came from, right? So I think a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, also in your mission, it says that um, Kona Kitchen is queer, gender, non-conforming, uh, or, or the business is helmed by queer, gender, non-conforming people of color. How do your personal identities intersect with your brand identities? Because that feels like, you know, such a, a conscious choice to include that when you're talking about your business, whereas, you know, most places are like, this is our restaurant and this is the food. They don't usually describe the people that are cooking the food. Yeah, well, I think that's what's... Um what I think, in my opinion, is missing from, you know, uh, a lot of spaces. I think in the food production cycle, um, and Chippel was kind of uh, alluding to this earlier, you don't really know who's cooking your food um, or you don't know where your food is coming from. And so for us, it's really important to highlight uh, who is actually doing the labor in producing the food um, and where mm -hmm. it's coming from. And oftentimes, the people who are doing that labor are marginalized identities or marginalized people. And even mm -hmm. um, thinking about uh, you know traditional businesses and where they get their funding and all that stuff, uh, those resources aren't usually available to uh, marginalized communities. Um, a lot of people of color are like redlined, or uh, there are really um, in. Uh, there are po these policies that inherently disadvantage people of color from being able to access uh, loans to even start businesses or to, to create brick and mortars, right? And so yeah. it's really important for us to put those identities in the forefront because um, they've just been so erased from the picture. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I would say keeping that in mind, does it feel or has, you know, based on your experience, has it felt like a good time or not such a good time to launch your business? I, th I think it's been very exciting when we take a moment to really see um, and because we're kind of hitting the one year or like just a, a bit above the one year mark of, uh, of doing everything. It's the conversation of this literally didn't exist a year and a half ago, you know, <laughs> um, and taking a moment to recognize that and to find, um, I think what you see kind of with our presidency, with the presidency in the Philippines, with um, the same in, in India and, and many different countries around the world, you see kind of this rise of, of fascism and of um, oppression existing for people of color, for those who are um, more disenfranchised. It's a ripe and opportune time to talk about these things and to bring in another solution of, um, you know, like solidarity economics versus this capitalist imperialist system. You know, we're literally creating another way to live um, and, and bringing that conversation to the people around us, which I think a lot of people have been uh, looking for and have been curious about. And so, um, a lot of times when people are emailing us for an order, they're saying that the reason they're even emailing us is because they saw our mission and value. They saw that it's owned by QTPOCs. They, they see those things and therefore want to make that connection with us and with our food. And so um, in, in this kind of time of, uh, of heightened 
yeah, oppression and um, violence towards a lot of our communities, kind of seeing something flourish and give kind of that hope and, and opportunity for people to experience something like this has been really great to be able to be a part of and to kind of see that happen. Yeah, I'm sure it feels like, um, you know, like an active thing you can do. I mean, just by supporting you, you're you're not just eating food. You're not just, you know, <laughs> going on to yeah. Seamless and, and ordering a burger and fries. I mean, it feels like it's, it's food activism in a way. Um, that being said, tell us where we can find you, how we can, I guess, hire you to cater <laughs> or hire you to teach us to live more healthfully. Um, Cole? Yeah, so... Um, April's a really busy month for us. Because You're like, don't call us in April. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. Well, come join us, actually. We'll, so, and speaking of food and activism, so our co-op is a part of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. And so uh, April's a really big month for us because we're going to head down to D.C. with Filipino activists across the country. Um, and uh, we are going to talk about the rise in fascism in the Philippines and here in the United States and, you know, really link um, uh, also struggles to places like India uh, and talk about how we can really fight for uh, a more just world um, here in the United States and in the Philippines. And so, you know, when we, we don't just talk about being organizers in the sense that like, yeah, we pay our dues to be a part of this organization, but, you know, we uh, as a cooperative, like, every other week or so we're also rallying like we're in the streets and we're also um taking an active stance uh against oppression and repression in the united states so you can find us on itrip's website or on their instagram we also have our website and instagram uh up and active um and we uh but what we do offer in the meantime um is the opportunity to yeah cater from us um we have a full food service menu um which can range from you know coming through and dropping off some really delicious food to uh if you have a wedding we can be there cooking and serving it up but also um we offer various uh workshops or uh, educational spaces and so if you want to talk about food migration, you want to talk about food justice, you want to learn how to compost, um, if you also want to learn how to meal plan, uh, there's a bunch of uh, different ways that we can interact and, and we can have that conversation. Great. And what's your website? It's kaonakitchen.com, K-H-A-O-N-A kitchen.com. Okay. And same for Instagram? Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. Um, Feel cool. free to call us, too. <laughs> You'll probably end up talking to me. <laughs> and their phone number is on the website? Yeah, it's 347-915-5426. <laughs> I love that. That <laughs> felt like so old-fashioned, like an old commercial with like the phone I'm number like, in it. <laughs> yeah, like actually call. Talk yeah, to pick up the phone. Talk to we'll a person. <laughs> what a crazy idea. <laughs> um, well, Shelba and Cole, thank you so much for spending this this time with us. It's just been so interesting and I feel like I've learned so much just by speaking with both of you and congratulations on your year anniversary thank it's you. a huge milestone thank you. Um, and doubling in size it's just tremendous how much you've accomplished in such a short amount of time so I look forward to keeping tabs on both of you and seeing what lies ahead and thank you out there for tuning in today you can 
Always find us on heritageradionetwork.org, but you can also find Food Without Borders on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher and subscribe. See you next week or hear you next week, listen to you next week, uh, Wednesday at 6 p.m. ET Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.